But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labour pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Well, good morning, church. It's a joy to be with you. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name's Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Canterbury Gardens Community Church. And as Shibu has mentioned on a number of occasions over the last few months, we as a leadership team miss you. We've been praying for you. And we can see a real way clear where God willing, we'll be together again. I don't know if you've ever had the displeasure of being involved in a church when it has had a significant rift, when it has split and a number of people have simply walked away. I'm not talking about the occasional central doctrinal heresy that may actually require upheaval to weed out falsehood but the far more common occurrence of people simply not getting on, usually because of strong-willed individuals, people with an axe to grind, or even more tragically, a leadership that is fractured, because when that happens, the flock is usually laid waste. I've witnessed it up close and personal to the extent that the doors were closed permanently, and I would wish it on no one. It leaves scars on some that never heal, and I can only wonder how this must grieve the Father heart of God. Whenever I hear of such an occurrence, I wonder how many of those who are directly involved reflect on the words of James 4, 1 and 2. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And then he answers his own question. Doesn't it come from your own wants, your own desires that battle within you? Why do I mention this? Because few themes in the Bible have as much potential to cause division as the text for today. That of eschatology. It has resulted in fractured friendships, strained relationships, and people even leaving churches, all because we see our view of eschatology as right. So if anyone else thinks differently, they must therefore be wrong. And furthermore, we should be forceful in letting them know that point. 
Eschatology is a theological term that literally means the study of last things, of end times. Scripture speaks, we know, of both our past origin in creation, as well as our future destiny in the consummation of all things. Yet rightly interpreting and properly understanding what the Bible teaches about some of the detail relating to the end of the world has proved difficult and even controversial throughout the history of the church. I like to remind myself and others who may be a little too gung-ho about the topic that if there are so many godly men and women, theologians, intellectuals that differ in their views about end times, perhaps grace and understanding is required when a fellow disciple of Jesus thinks differently to us. So, for instance, what do the following four people have in common? Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards. Now, those of you who know those names might say they were all great preachers and you'd be right in saying that. You might say they were faithful and they were, absolutely. That they were tireless in fulfilling their calling to the extent that some of their bodies simply wore out in the ministry for Jesus. And that too is true. But something they didn't have in common was their view of eschatology. You see, these men aren't remembered for their eschatology, but for the numerous contributions they made to God's kingdom. If we can accept such individuals as being significant, and they were significant, in contributing to the proclamation of God's word and seeing many, many lives transformed as a result, why should we show any less respect to our brothers and sisters who hold different views on end times? My goal for today is to focus on what Paul says. Not on massaging the message to suit my own view of end times. And indeed, the solemn responsibility of anyone who teaches God's word is to do just that, isn't it? To proclaim what the text says. So I encourage you, as we, as we refer to a number of different Bible references this morning, to perhaps get a pencil and paper, jot them down, so that later on you can have a look at what God's word says on this matter. So let's cut to the chase. Why did Paul write these words to the Thessalonian Christians? Well, I see four reasons for Paul proclaiming the glorious, the wondrous return of Jesus Christ. Not one relates to arguing, creating division or causing offence to another follower of Jesus. So quickly, firstly, he writes to clarify confusion around Jesus's return. He says in chapter four and verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Secondly, he writes because he wishes to encourage them. In chapter 4 and verse 18 and chapter 5 and verse 11, therefore encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another and build one another up, just as in fact you are doing. Thirdly, he wants to prepare them for his return. In chapter 5 and verse 5, he says, We are not in the dark, but are children of light. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Finally, by extension, Though Paul wasn't likely to know it at the time, he writes, guided by God's spirit, so many countless millions who have heard these words would be challenged to choose their lot in eternity. So he writes these wonderful words in chapter 5 and verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we were awake or asleep, we might live for him. Amen. In his sovereign plan, God places this little letter in the canon of Scripture to call us all to be part of an event that is unparalleled in human history. So I'd like us briefly to focus on three things this morning. The hope of Jesus' return, the power of Jesus' return, and the preparedness for Jesus' return. 
Firstly, the hope of Jesus's return. Let's read together again from verse 13 of chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. You see, the Thessalonians faced what many in the fledgling church had to try and reconcile. What happens when Christians die, yet Jesus hasn't returned yet? What happens to those who are martyred, who died from accident or illness, or old age simply caught up with them and they passed away? It wasn't that Paul had not told them about Jesus' return. We find that he mentions it in chapter 1, chapter 2, and even in verse chapter 3. But there were some issues about the coming of the Lord that troubled these new Christians. Firstly, the persecution they were experiencing was causing some of them to wonder if they had actually missed the rapture that Paul had told them about. And so he writes in chapter 3 and verse 3 these words, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labour would be in vain. It was clear one of the messages Paul had given Timothy to pass on was that indeed they were to suffer. But they were not to be shaken by this, for Jesus would stand with them. Secondly, we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2 that Paul recognized there was also false teaching going on about this this topic and so paul says to them there in second thessalonians 2 and verse 2 not to become uneasily easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter asserting that the day of the lord has already come in fact they hadn't missed the day of the lord and paul asserts that they should not grieve as those who are without hope about those who have fallen asleep now, this expression falling asleep is widely used in the New Testament of believers who had died. So it's important to understand context in order to rightly interpret its meaning. We understand when it talks about falling asleep in chapter in chapter 4 and verse 15, that it's referring to the death of the Christians. Matthew 27 and 52 has these amazing words after Jesus' death on the cross. We're told the tombs were opened and many of the saints who had fallen asleep, who were in the tombs, were raised and they went into the city and proclaimed Jesus. In John chapter 11, we read that amazing account of Lazarus. He's going to, to visit his friend Lazarus and he gets word he's sick and he gets word, no, it's too late, he's passed away. He goes and greets the sisters and they say, you're far too late, Lord, he's been dead four days. Jesus said, no, he's asleep. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death. The writer to Acts says he falls asleep as he dies. You see, Paul knows like us that death is not the end. Yet in the context of a verse like chapter 5 and verse 7, it's readily apparent that here Paul speaks of sleep in the setting we would normally associate it with. He says those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Nor does this term sleep refer to some kind of soul sleep where some would argue that when we die, there is sleep until Jesus' return. Philippians 1, 21 to 23 says these wonderful words. 
For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go and living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with the Christ, which is better by far. Second Corinthians 5.8 Yes, we're of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, why the excitement about death? Why the excitement of being away from the body if Paul thought he was entering soul sleep? No, Paul knew that upon his death, he would enter in the presence of the Lord. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. How did Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus at the transfiguration if they were in soul sleep? After death, the redeemed go consciously into the presence of the Lord. The rich man and Lazarus, that account of Jesus makes no sense if that were not the case. Those who have gone before us are in the presence of the Lord where there is no more pain, weeping or mourning, for he will wipe away every tear. I also just want to clarify what the term hope actually means in the biblical context at the end of verse 13. We do not want you to grieve as those who do not have any hope. We often use the word hope without any real confidence or certainty in our vernacular today. I hope my team wins the grand final next year. It'd be great, but I don't really have any confidence in it. We might hope for health or success in job interview, though for most of us, it's not said with much confidence. It's kind of the flick of a coin. Who knows? The New Testament writers' use of hope focuses our attention on God and fills us with the eager anticipation that because it's from God, he will fulfill what he's promised. Lawrence Richards says, no one who learns to hope in a biblical way will ever be overcome by disappointment, but we will be filled with patience, encouragement and enthusiasm. In the New Testament, hope is always the expectation of something good. And because God is involved in its fulfillment, there is only anticipation in seeing it become a reality. The hope of Jesus' return is our sure certainty because it is based on God's promise being fulfilled. But when he does return, friends, there will be no confusion. It will be, we're told, with power. Read with me from verse 16 of chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There will be a cry of command, the voice of an angel, the trumpet sound of God. Friends, if that doesn't raise the hairs on the back of your neck, if you're not a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and don't get excited by this, I don't know what will excite you. When Jesus comes again, make no mistake, everyone's going to know. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? We will meet those who have died and gone to be with him in the air. Those whose grave sides were wept at. Imagine the celebration, the joy at being with those we miss so much in the here and now. Now let's drill down for a moment and follow Paul's words here. If those who have died are already with him, why does Paul emphasize the fact that they are coming with Jesus, that we who are alive will not precede them? That indeed the dead in Christ will rise first and those who are alive will meet them in the air. Well, the flow of Paul's argument is this. Those who have fallen asleep 
that have already died and are with him spiritually, as we've already looked at, will rise physically and will meet the rest in the air where everyone will be given a new body, as per John chapter 5, verse 25 to 29. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The resurrection of God's people is not simply a New Testament teaching, friends. Isaiah 26, 19 says, But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting shame and contempt. Among others, Ezekiel also mentions a resurrection of God's people. In the New Testament, the writers say it like this. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the same power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. You see, he, he who created the laws of physics, of time, of matter and even gravity is not constrained by them. The one who has been martyred, who has been in the ground for centuries, who has drowned at sea or been burned alive, that precious little one who didn't even get to breathe their first breath, all of these and more, together with those who are alive, will be given a new body when Jesus comes again. The people of biblical times understood this. They knew that when people died, their body was rotted very quickly afterwards. And as I mentioned in passing earlier, this will be a moment unparalleled in human history. Jesus Christ will come in all power, wonder and might. All of his disciples will be present. The saints throughout history will have a new resurrection body as Jesus himself does, far superior to our old one. We will be together with those who have gone before and we can only begin to imagine what it will be like. But one thing is certain, while we will celebrate being together, I believe it's the wonder of beholding Christ in all his glory that will be the focus of our attention. In light of the power and glory of Jesus' return, it's only right that we consider how we might then prepare for this event. Please read for me as we look at the preparedness of Jesus' return from chapter 5 and verse 1. Now, the con now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. 
For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. It stands to reason that after gaining clarity around the return of Jesus, the next logical question is, when is this going to come take place? When will Jesus come again? Now, again, depending on your view of end times, will guide your understanding of just when exactly the day of the Lord will be. But Paul's concern is not the when so much as the necessity to be ready. It is this that ought to be of paramount importance to all of God's people. Paul had evidently taught them about the day of the Lord and thus reminds the Thessalonians not to be troubled. Their focus was to be one of preparedness, of remembering that it will be when most least likely expected. Like a thief, we're told. Now, I don't know about you, but when a thief comes, he doesn't usually give you warning of that fact. He doesn't put a note on your door and say, around midday tomorrow while everyone's out, I'm going to be in, breaking into your house. He doesn't reveal himself as trying to case the place out. At least if he's any good at his job. His success depends on complete surprise. Friends, can I implore you to take anyone who says they know when Jesus is coming with the grain of salt it deserves, because no one knows when he's coming. Mark 13, 32 says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. These are Jesus' words, and for my money, they hold more weight than anyone who thinks they've unlocked the secret code in Daniel, or who claim a divine revelation from the Lord, or even the well-meaning folk who long for that day so much that they read into things that perhaps they shouldn't. Many who lived for the, through the First World War never thought there could ever be another one. They thought it was the beginning of the end. Hitler was considered by many as the Antichrist. Closer to home for us, I recall the millennium bug as the clock was ticking over to the year 2000. Everyone was in turmoil. The computers would stop working. The end of the world as we know it might be soon. I'm sure many of you remember where you were when the Twin Towers collapsed, 9-11. I was on my way to work. I remember hearing about it as it was unfolding while I was going to work. It's left an indelible print on my mind. Even much closer to ourselves, COVID-19. I guess like me, you've, you've read the blogs. You've seen the text messages, the Facebook posts perhaps about this being a sign of end times, about perhaps inoculation meaning that we're going to receive the mark of the beast. Yet while it is that it will come a surprise, it is no less assured. Paul says like labour pains coming upon a pregnant woman. Just as a pregnant woman knows the day is coming and has constant reminders through the changes in her body. Whether it's hormonal, physical or emotional, there are changes that are constant clues as to what is to come for the expectant mother. So too, the disciple of Jesus is reminded again and again that what we see take place in the world is a sign, 
as to what the Lord has promised and he will do it. Now, don't get me wrong. Understanding what is going on and seeing the fulfillment of scripture is a worthy pursuit. And the Bible gives us clues as to what we should look out for. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 is sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples come to him in private and say, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of birth pains. Yet all these things, Jesus says, are but the beginning. Church, don't fall into the trap of thinking God's timing automatically equates to our sense of time. So again, there's a reminder that Paul's purpose here is on helping these Thessalonian Christians and by extension, all who would follow, that's us, to be prepared by keeping awake, being sober. Don't fall asleep at the wheel, Paul says. This happens all too easily when the busyness, the trials of life overtake us, when work or family life drain us, when our concept of godliness equates to how busy we are in his service, when that subtle pull of the world calls us to compare ourselves with others. Why can't I have a house like so-and-so? Why do I have to drive around in an old bomb when my neighbour has a beautiful new car? Why is my retirement never going to be like so-and-so's? Because I just don't have the resources they do. Why is it that the family, that the marriage I'm looking at over there seems to be so perfect and yet I have all these challenges? There are so many things that can lull us to sleep spiritually or distract us from those things that are of eternal significance. Things that are not wrong in and of themselves. So how do we stay alert? How can we be in a constant state of preparedness? What does Paul have to say? Well, in verse 8, there's a key component of any soldier's effectiveness. And that's the defensive protection they carry. And Paul points to this. To the power of faith, love and hope as key to being prepared for what is surely to come. And here that phrase, faith, hope and love, is bookended in 1 Thessalonians. Recall we first heard those three words in chapter 1 and verse 3. And it's there in chapter 1 and verse 3 that Paul talks of a work of faith, a labour of love, a steadfastness of hope. His focus there is on what the Thessalonians are known for their work, their labour and their steadfastness. But I think here the focus is more on what's going on within. A work of faith, a labour of love, a steadfastness in hope is the outpouring of what's going on in our heart. Faith points to an absolute confidence in the power of God, in a God who fulfils his promises, of a sovereign God who sees the beginning from the end. Love becomes the outpouring of that faith. It's directed towards both God and man. Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law 
and the prophets. It's the true expression of love toward God and others that bear testimony to the faith in a God who has saved us by grace. In the context of this passage, the hope of salvation Paul mentions here focuses on that future aspect of salvation where the consummation of all things awaits. We already heard Philippians 3.21. He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In the fulfillment of what it is, the fulfillment of what Paul describes in Romans 8.23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Later in Romans, Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Paul says, The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It's not that we aren't now completely saved by God through Christ, by the power of God's Spirit's work in us. But there is a time coming when a new resurrection body becomes the crowning achievement and glory of God's mighty redemptive plan. Friends, does that excite you? Does it encourage you? This is what we have to look forward to. Does it cause you to be encouraged in this present age, to be prepared for that day in so far as you're able? Do you feel you can encourage others to consider these things? Does it compel us to share with those who are indeed walking in darkness? That was Paul's purpose, that we would be prepared that we would share this glory with others. John Stock, in talking about this passage, says this, Faith is directed towards God, love towards others, both within the Christian fellowship and beyond, and hope towards the future, in particular, the glorious coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Similarly, faith rests in the past, love works in the present, hope looks to the future. Stock says, Every Christian without exception is a believer, a lover and a hoper. Faith, hope and love are three sure evidences of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. So as we conclude, what do you think is the biggest issue with the study of eschatology? For me, it's to do with being so fixated with the study of end times that we forget the necessity of living in the here and now. And I think it becomes more significant as we get older, and I totally understand that. Our own bodies cannot do what they once did when we were younger. Experience tells us that the world we're in is a broken place, that it is full of broken people. And so it's only natural as we get older, particularly, that we long for that day when Jesus will return. The focus of the New Testament writers when they spoke on such things was to bring encouragement, to strengthen faith, to call us to live lives today that would be pleasing to Christ if it was we knew he was coming tomorrow. Now, you and I might argue, how is that fair? Why string the church on saying that Jesus may come at any time when in actual fact he might not? Why get Christians worried about where they are, what they're doing, what their priorities are, when he may not even be coming in our own lifetime? But you see, that's the whole point. That's what the writers in the New Testament are getting at. That's what God is trying to reinforce to our minds. The call to being ready is all about living each day as you would if you thought Jesus was coming tomorrow. And that's there's no secret, there's no trick to that. 
There is nothing in that which should cause any concern because it is no more or less than what every follower of Jesus should be aspiring to anyway. The motivation is not to change what you're doing now. It's not even to stop what you're doing now and do something different. Uh, unless, of course, you're actually doing things that are totally outside the revealed will of God. The focus is to be doing, to be living each day as Christ calls us to be, wherever that is. If that's as a pastor, do it to the best of your ability. If that's as a cleaner, do it to the best of your ability. If that's as a, as, as a mother, if that's as a father, if that's as a, a high flyer in industry, do it to the best of your ability for God's glory. So God expects us to provide for our families, to go to work, to have rest, to love and respect each other in our relationships. That's what we're talking about. Do those things to the best of your ability. If we serve, serve wholeheartedly. If we give, give generously. If we share our faith, let's do it with the freedom of knowing that Jesus stands with us. There is nothing for us to fear. If we're at work, do so with integrity. If we're raising a family or in any other endeavour, work on those things that God sees as important in the here and now of what you're doing. You see, it's not about being perfect, but the intent of the heart. For that is what is actually open and laid bare before him anyway. To suggest we could repair a heart issue on the basis of knowing that Jesus is coming tomorrow is to suggest that we have the ability to choose or reject him at our whim, like he's some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. Friends, salvation isn't like that. Nor is maturity in the Christian faith. It's not something that can be turned on and off like a tap, whenever we wish. But rather, it's a conscious, deliberate, heartfelt desire to walk with and to be like him. Let's put on the armour that protects us from the enemy. You see, Satan loves for us to be lulled to sleep, so wrapped up with what the world considers significant that we fail to heed the incredible words, Jesus is coming again. Maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day, but he is coming again. Would truly believing that, should believing that make a difference? I'll leave that for you to consider. Well, I referred earlier to different views of eschatology, and the truth is some will be found right and some will be found lacking. But you know what? I don't think anyone's going to care when all of God's people stand in awe of Christ in all his glory and power. So please show some grace. Respect to those who hold a different view. Don't let these things divide us, but encourage each other with these words. Jesus is coming again, someday soon. We don't know when he's coming, but we know it's closer to today than it has ever been. You know, it would be remiss of me, indeed even negligent, not to ask those of you who are listening who have little or no personal investment in what we've been talking about this morning, so on behalf of the leadership team of the wider church community here, we pray, we ask now that you would take this moment to invest in what you cannot gain and receive what you could never work towards.
we ask that you not be like those who are without hope or whose hope is in the wrong things. I'm reminded of a, an account I heard many, many years ago by a pastor who was sharing something of his own personal testimony. He grew up in a Christian family. Uh, he had a brother that he was close to. Growing up in the Christian home, the pastor was converted at a young age and he was committed to ministry. He went to a seminary and became a, a pastor for all his life. His brother, on the other hand, was somewhat of a black sheep of the family. Um, and many times he spoke to his brother and said, you need to get yourself right with the Lord. Those things that you know in your heart is true. You, you, you need to approach the th God's throne of grace. And his brother often said to him, I've got so much I want to do. There's so much I'm enjoying in life. I don't want to be constrained by the things that you're constrained with. As if somehow his brother didn't have joy, didn't have happiness, didn't have fulfillment in his Christian walk. And he, his brother would say to him, at the right time when I really need to, I'll put all those things in order. And then he told the story of sitting at his brother's bedside in the hospital. His brother didn't have long and he pled with his brother that he would put his life right with the Lord. But that never happened. And later on, he realized the hardness of heart, the constant rejection of God, meant that even in his deepest need, his desire for change had gone. Friends, we don't want that with you. We want you to be part of this glorious day. We want you to experience what Paul says in verse 9 of chapter 5. He is not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation to our Lord. For our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we were awake or asleep, we might live with him. Today is the day. Today is the opportunity. If God is speaking to you, speak to him now. Talk to a friend. Don't put off what you know God is asking you to do. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for the promise that Jesus Christ is coming again. We ask that that day come soon and that you would help us to be ready. We also ask you to send a great revival so that as many as possible might come to know you before the end comes and it is too late. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name because it is in and through him that we live and breathe and have our hope. Amen. God bless church.